Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacey Jones. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacey Jones, and I'm so happy to be here with you all today. And I want to give a very warm welcome to Gary Frying. Gary is a coach, connector, MacGyver, and confidant for CEOs and their teams as they scale up their businesses, as well as the co-host of the Anything But Typical podcast, featuring, featuring vulnerable behind-the-scenes stories of ripple-making entrepreneurs. In his career, he served as president of four successful companies, has done two turnarounds, and held executive positions in two Fortune 100 companies. Not to mention, he's a successful author, as well with his book, Silence, The Imposter. Now he leads business growth coaching and business development efforts for BGW, a regional CPA firm that serves privately held businesses and their owners. Today, Gary and I are going to be chatting about how you can become an effective leader to generate business growth and develop a truly successful brand. We'll learn what works from Gary's perspective, what should be avoided, and how some businesses and leaders miss the mark. Gary, welcome. So happy to have you here today. Thank you so much, Stacey. It's an honor to be with you on this great podcast. Well, I always love chatting and starting this off with how did you get here today? I mean, you have worked at some big companies along the way. You own an advertising agency. You have checked a lot of boxes to say that you actually know your stuff. Well, <laughs> That's very gracious, but actually my career is I planned and God laughed, and that is no joke <laughs> because I thought I was a graphic designer early on in my career, and I had a nose for being able to decipher kind of right brain creative thought and problem solving to left brain CEOs, and early on in my career. I thought everybody did, but evidently not. And so I was tagged to do my first agency turnaround in 19, gosh, what was it? 1990, I guess, 8990. And um, I thought that would be the my forever home, quite frankly. We I we successfully turned around this agency, had my name put on the door. And we grew it and we had a funky place, you know, it was back in the, the days of 30 something, you'll have to Google that <laughs> to, for anybody that's younger than 50, probably. But um, we had a very cool place. We had redone a chili factory in Wichita, Kansas. It was really cool. And I loved it. I loved my life. I loved my career. I loved my work family and my home family. And, and it was wonderful. And then I caught my partner and his financial improprieties, that's a nice way of putting it, uh, a couple times. And so the, the, the difficult part of that was, I mean, besides the financial devastation to me, but it was just the betrayal of it all, right? You know, it's like, and he was 20 years older than me. And so I became painfully aware at age 32 that I'm going to have to leave my own company that had my name on the door or destroy my name. I was either going to have to destroy him and I didn't want to do it. He had just made a series of stupid mistakes, you know, like, and it's a slippery slope. We're all capable of 
we're, we're one stupid decision away from destruction. I'm convinced of it. And so I learned that at a very tender age. But if it I didn't destroy one him. thing that the wheels fall off the bus and all of a sudden all the wheels keep on popping off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was tough. And I wasn't going to destroy my name by going across the street. Everybody in town knew him. He had been the head of corporate communications for Cessna Aircraft, and he was 20 years older than me. Right. Everybody in town 32. knew him. And I was 32, hmm. you know, so I had to leave. And that was Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, I, I kept, I saw myself as a designer slash turnaround guy, I guess, because what we did was kind of cool. I just took it for granted. But then all of a sudden I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, take equity in another place, bring a couple million dollar account, one of my top people with me. And as soon as we delivered everything we said we would, my partner said, got what I needed, have a good life, literally. And he knew I forgave hundreds of thousands of dollars, owed me about 30 grand in commissions at that point. And we were six months into Charlotte, North Carolina, and we had to start all freaking over again. And we we were on fumes. I had two little kids at home with my wife and and it was on my shoulders. So that's what took me into corporate America. Again, I kept thinking of myself as a, I got to get back into the agency world, but they saw me and actually it was at Bank of America as Nations Bank at the time. They said, we have a MacGyver role. They They recruited me away and they had made a massive acquisition in 11 state region in the country all the numbers were upside down and and they were very good at acquisitions on the east east coast but this one was an anomaly and because i was from the midwest and i had this reputation of being a built a bridge builder across kind of warring factions at another bank <laughs> they were like you're our guy and they thought it was a communication problem which is what had all the numbers upside down. And they said, we need you to go figure it out. Well, they were half right. It was a communication problem, but the bigger thing was, and this is what really kind of did a hard pivot on my career, was I learned that it was a culture problem. Mm -hmm. It was a culture problem more than a communication problem. Yeah, the communication was symptomatic of an underlying problem. And that's where I learned holy moly, just because the numbers look good on an acquisition doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. And it's culture that always upends everything. But we were very strong in our culture. Do the right thing, teamwork and trust, and have a passion for winning. In that order, those were our core values. And I was made clear of those things my first day. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I learned so much there. Um, but the the issue was is the acquired company was a very decentralized company did not understand the communication had not gone out there and so we had advertising that we were spending hundreds of millions of dollars out there saying nation's bank the sign of more good things to come and what it meant was after i went and macgyvered the front line in these regions from frontline to regional execs and business customers as well as general customers the reality was they were saying, you keep your good things. You just jacked up my fees. You dropped my rate of return. And my Susie, the teller that I've loved for so long, is afraid she's going to lose her job. And my business banker, Bob, 
has been emasculated and all his decision-making authority has got shipped to Charlotte, keep it. So that's what, what it was. So I came back and said, that's the issue. And um, so we did a simple brand wallet card. We knew what our core values were. We knew what our core purpose was. We knew our brand promise. We had all these things in decks in the executive offices of you know, Trade and Tryon here in Charlotte, North Carolina. The problem was, is our front line didn't know what they were. They hadn't and read they didn't, What? They didn't just like they, osmosis, no. <laughs> understand what it is, getting imbibed throughout their whole body with it. It's amazing. Yeah. You think that the osmosis naturally happens when the CEO thinks it, but that's not how it works. I don't understand. As a CEO and founder of an agency myself, I don't get it. I mean, I dream up these concoctions in the middle of the night and, you know, my team <laughs> should just automatically know it the next morning, right? Isn't that how the real That's how it works? should be. Right. <laughs> in a perfect world, that's how it should be. In the world of robots. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Um, when I came back after my kind of whirlwind tour, my boss, who's one of the, the top female execs at the bank still to this day, much, much wealthier person than I am, but just so wise and such a good boss. Um, she said, so what'd you find and what do you recommend? I told her, she goes, well, what do you think? And I said, let's take a playbook from somebody who's doing it right. The Ritz Carlton. Now a bank is that not the is Ritz like a level of, service like no comparison exactly and i said they are the most at that time they were the most intentional in cultures i would put them and southwest airlines at the time and yeah. this is in the late 80s or 90s actually completely that's why southwest is successful to this day yeah totally herb calher was very kind of similar in in regard in some regards to hugh mccall who was our chairman and ceo they walked among the troops. They were genuinely interested in the front line. They didn't have airs. They weren't in the perch, you know, you know, safely hermetically sealed from the rest of the organization. No, they actually were very in touch with their organization. The problem was, is this massive acquisition was outside of where he normally roamed the halls. And so that was part of the issue, I think. But I just said, you know, the the Ritz-Carlton has this credo card that they go do stand-ups every day with their people and they go down their core values. And, you know, we had three. They had a whole bunch, you know, and they, they went down their credo card every day. And I just said, I think we've got all this stuff. We just haven't educated our people. But if we just send it internally and we don't have one-on-one -on -one conversations like my boss had with me on my first day, which was, Gary, welcome to Nations Bank. We're so glad to have you. few things that you need to know. We are not nations. We are Nations Bank. We are more red than blue. These are our core values. Your job is to make sure I know who your stars are because I inherited an army of people after I MacGyvered the thing. And my job, hers, was to make sure that Hugh McCall knew who I was. She said, hire your replacement and never be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. That was the summation of a one hour meeting that just completely set the tone for me. And it was amazing, but I just said, Helen, if we just create these wallet cards and we don't have the one-on-one -on -one conversations like you did with me on my first day, 
we've lost. Then it's just more marketing crap from Charlotte, keep it. But if we do it one-on-one and people understand the way that it, the lore was transferred from Humacall to you, we got a shot. And sure enough, um, we ended up doing it throughout the entire franchise, not just that 11-state region. Mm-hmm. And within about six months, the numbers turned. Now, I would love to say it was all of Gary Fry. No, it wasn't. But it had a piece of that. And so what was supposed to be a three-year stint turned into a, about a nine-month deal. Uh, and then I ended up running the business side of, of all of Bank of America. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I, back to your original question, like, how do you get to here? Like, literally, every job I've had from being the first president of bizjournals.com which that was an interesting thing. I was like, I don't know anything about that business. Um, they kept coming back to me based on things that I have in my, what I call a thrive wither T-chart that I did on myself when I caught my partner hand in the cookie jar right. of stuff that makes me come alive versus stuff that made me wither. And the stuff that was always in my thrive column, which was, you know, solving problems, bringing the right people together, finding win-win solutions, all of those things have been things that have gotten me drawn and pulled and actually recruited into places where I kept saying, I don't belong here. I don't understand. I don't know this business. And they're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what business you're in if you can figure out people and figure out how to have communication. Yeah, yeah, that's really it, you know. Um, And so it it has been just this amazing and wild ride that has gone into private equity. And I mean, the last turnaround that I did was a sales turnaround of an insulating glass manufacturing company. What? You know, I'm like, I don't know anything about that. And that's a dangerous and scary business. And um, but, you know, it was a lot of the same principles that kept being utilized. And and that's how I made it into the C-suite with Yokohama Tire. I had no business being there, quite frankly, but they had they needed somebody outside of the jar to help them read the label. I had relationships with the top American management team there and and it was a branding issue, but it went back to the same sort of things that I learned at Nations Bank and Bank of America, which was really quite interesting. I mean, Yokohama's in your backyard. They're in Fullerton, California, and they were a performance brand when they came to the United States, but they were so, um, they had given so much autonomy to the American CEO and they would you know, they would channel out and transfer out a CEO every few years and whatever they chased is what they went with. Well, they kind of lost their soul in, uh, in the U S and that company actually was a a fusion between a rubber manufacturer and a steel cable manufacturer during world war II. It was just a slam together joint venture that didn't really have a soul. And so when it just ticked Norio along. Karashima, pardon me? It just ticked along. Success. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and you know, success, success is okay. But then when competitors start eating you for lunch, 
in that market, you got a problem, then uh-oh, what do we do? And Norio Karashima understood he had a passion for the performance side anyway. He'd done a big stint in Europe and um, said, you know, can we regain this performance category again in the United States? I said, well, we need to do some research. I did a very huge project for them, hundreds of thousands of dollars to find out one, could they capture it again? But then we, when we found out that, yeah, it was still believable, we had to do the exact same thing that we did at Nations Bank, Bank of America. We, we got serious about what their core values were, their core purpose, their brand promise, all of those things. And I said, but if you and your management team don't exemplify this, don't, this is a waste of time. I think but a lot of people it. forget, like, you know, you sit there and you talk about your core processes. You talk about not processes, or values. You sit there, you talk about your mission. You, you talk yep. about your value statement. And you think about these as being very outwardly facing of how you want to be perceived. But if you don't start it inside your own business agency or the like, those wheels that I mentioned before are firmly off the bus because absolutely, who is going to pull this together except your highest level execs and they're going to get burned out trying to all the time get everyone to line up behind them in the right way and you lose yes. your entire support and your entire voice and you end up having coops and like it's just a mess yeah man you know I, management always sets the tone and if they just think it's you know you can outsource that to marketing well it's going to feel that way and it's just everything is going to feel hollow and not real you know, Simon Sinek just nails it so, so much, the I why? think, you know, on the why. Yeah. And either you got it or you don't. Yeah. But when Mr. Kirishima at Yokohama understood it and, and I said, you've got to get behind it. Well, he the first thing that he did, and we did wallet cards too, and it's not because it's wallet cards, but it was just a fast way of conveying. Wait, 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 he wait. Went so to, wallet cards. What are wallet cards? Because even I don't know what a wallet card is. Or maybe Okay, well, a wallet card. Actually, mm -hmm. I'll show you one. And this may not be on video, but... Um, I'll describe it. This is what we did with Yokohama. Okay, so you got a card so, and it, it's a trifold. It opens up and it has yep. all of your... Brand mission, core values, brand personality, customer experience, brand position, core core purpose. This is super it was old something school that was print that you're suggesting is like not just so old school that it actually should be all school. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's just it was just something that could be tangible, tangible. And as a reminder, and not and just a the, sign in your office. On the oh, wall. that's the worst. That's the worst. I mean. If you if you live it, great. But if it's just, hey, we did it. We put the sign company up and they put vinyl graphics up in that, like, check the box. No, no, no. You, you create cynics if you do that, if you don't live it. Right. It doesn't mean that you're perfect with it. But what was so interesting, this, this really was important, especially with the Japanese, because the business card is sacred in many regards. They hold both corners. They bow. They give it to you. Mr. Kirishima did that with the head of Honda USA. He went and said, this is what we stand for. If you see anything that we do that is incongruent with these words, here is my phone number. Boom. Oh, wow. Well, so here's what's, here's what's really funny about this story and what I think is the coolest part. 
I, they actually wanted to hire me full-time and move to California. And I had a, a son that was going to college in Kentucky at the time. My other kid was going to be a senior in high school. And I'm like, I, I'm not moving. And so I sold my company to a private equity firm that I had invested in. And they were doing cultural compatibility assessment. And we were acquiring a bunch of companies. And so I'd been on the board already. So I'm like, because of the kind of clientele we had, they were some were billionaires, but they're very, very high net worth people. I'm like, you got to be really careful about these acquisitions. Culture matters. Well, that company, I joined them in 05. It blew up in 09 and it was just awful. And I was asked to shut down 11 offices. I was the last guy standing, 90 people gone, CEO proven to be like a fraud. Is awful, is, is the worst. And I called the top American at Yokohama shortly after that. This is in 09. In the thick of the recession, and I said, Jim, Jim McMaster is his name. He said, hey, what's going on? I said, oh, it's not good. You know, I don't even want to talk about it. But I said, I want to know, did what we do matter? Did it make a difference? Because I was questioning everything at that point. It's kind of like, this is overly dramatic, but this is how I felt. You know, there's a scene in um, Saving Private Ryan where Private Ryan is old and he's at the gravesite in Normandy. And he said, did my life matter? Mm -hmm. And that's how, kind of how I felt because we had lost all of our money. $30 million worth of us got blown up at this point. And McMaster says, Gary, do you know how many people we've had to fire in this recession? And I said, no. I mean, I just didn't even want to hear it. He said, zero. I said, really? You're kidding me. And he said, no. And he said, Kirishima says to this day, that was the single most impactful thing that we could have ever done. You could have charged us a hundred times what you charge us. And it was hundreds of thousands of dollars that I charged him. Um, he said, that is the single most important thing that we've ever done as a company. I said, are you kidding me? So that's why, and again, why? manifest why that, why was that the single most important? What message did it give the team members? They Because they got focused on who they were. Mm -hmm. They got focused on their purpose and their core values and their positioning. Instead of chasing to be OEM on minivans, which one of the CEOs at one point wanted to do, or, you know, let's chase these humongous over the road uh, truck tires or the, the real big earth mover tires, which are very expensive. Let's focus on let's being true to who we are, our DNA, and stick with it <laughs> and live it. And that's what they did. Okay. I just think that's cool. And so when you're talking about turnarounds, right? So a turnaround to you is when there's one management owner that is being swapped for another and you're trying to keep everyone aligned along the way and keep the business running. That's Sometimes, <laughs> um, but I've been brought in with turnarounds where it's the same management team. The problem is, is they're, if they don't, if they don't turn around the ship, they're going down because right. a couple of them have been in bankruptcy kind of situations. Mm -hmm. 
they didn't, and believe it or not, it actually costs money to go bankrupt. So right. I've been in two situations where they didn't have the money to go bankrupt. Right. So there was really no option, but grow our way out of it and do it fast. So and how do you do that? How do you grow your way out of your, almost your leveling up where you might hit bankruptcy? You can't actually afford to go bankrupt. So you have to find new ways to get money in. Yeah, well, each each situation is different. Mm -hmm. But what I did in both of these two turnarounds, we had to assess, first of all, who's our, who's on our team? What's, and, and in one case, everybody quit except for me and my partner. So <laughs> it's just him and me. But then we had to go in and tier our client base. Like, all right, who's making money? Who's not? Who's loyal? Who's with us? Who's not? We had to look at our processes. In one case, we were billing by the hour, which was wasteful. I said, screw that. We're going to be do everything value-based pricing, and we are going to be on the high end of the market, but we are going to kill them in service and give them a creative product that they could, could not buy somewhere else. Okay. So we just got really simple, really basic, but understanding what's our value. And understanding like what drives us, you know, if, if we don't take the time to understand why do we exist, go back to the Simon Sinek golden circle, then we're just chasing the wind, I think. And then it's just chasing anything that grows that has money. And that's hollow. And especially with this workforce today, they demand more. They want to know what am I signing up for? Yeah. It's the younger generation wants to have a purpose. They want to know that they're not just at a job and yes. they would rather not be paid a lot of money and have more freedom to pursue any and all interests whatsoever. They still want the money, mind you, but yeah, they, they do. don't want what we <laughs> grew up in. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's not about, you know, do you have a Mercedes or two of them in your garage or three? It's about, do I have flexibility and freedom to be who I am? And can I pay my bills and can I go on vacation and go do a walkabout when I want to? Yeah. And am I treated with respect and honor? <laughs> right. No matter yeah. your age, which I think is really hard for older executives. The older I get, the more I see it um, from not just not internally at our agency, but from my peers who run other companies. Um, and it's hard yeah. because you have all this experience. And I think this is harder this generation than it ever has been before. And I'm not just saying this as I'm approaching 50s, but like how we grew up in our 20s and our 30s. And now we're in management and ownership positions of organizations or high level mm -hmm. C-suite. Everything we did to get there that we knew was successful that would get us to that point has been washed away between the times of change and the ebb of flows and COVID and high work yeah. remote and hybrid situations. And so you have these older individuals who are like, no, 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 this is not the rules. This is not what I worked for. This is not how things yeah. actually work. I would never have done X, Y, Z. And there, it's, it's a divide that has truly happened mm. right now. And it's in every organization and it's difficult. Yeah, I, I see it too. Um, I still think it comes down to though, understanding your why mm -hmm. and aligning with other people that have similar. Now, 
that doesn't mean everybody thinks the same. I actually believe that you need diversity of thought. And I'm not talking about check the box diversity and inclusion. I'm talking about can somebody look at a, a problem or can you have a completely different and polar opposite view of something and still show respect for one another? Then you can get a whole lot of amazing stuff done and you can create some amazing solutions that you wouldn't have thought of if you're just in the same echo chamber. Mm-hmm. I really do believe that, but it, I think it still comes down to why am I doing it and, and getting into some creative problem solving as to what's the root cause of this or that and bringing value. If you truly long to bring value to somebody else versus what's in it for me, scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset mindset. You know, if you, if you see the world and the marketplace as a big ocean with lots of fish, your competitors don't threaten you. But if, if you have a scarcity mindset, you see a competitor that catches a fish, you see that as a threat because, Hey, that's one less for me. Guess what, buddy? The ocean is filled with fish. Right. (laughs) I know. And that's, I think that's what's so interesting. Like I, I'm a member of an agency ownership group called Agency Management Institute. And we get together twice a year. Um, the owners, it's about 12 different agencies at a time. And you get naked, you show your financials, you talk about what's good, you talk about what's bad. And they're very careful of trying to create these groups where you don't feel that it's like your same market or you're saying, yeah. you know, yeah. you're not competing against it. But in reality, it doesn't matter. Because whether you're an advertising agency or a tire manufacturer or anything, putting you guys in the same room, you have the same problems. You have the same issues. Yes, you might be going after the same clients in the big scheme of things because, you know, some agencies see all agencies of all types as competitors because the client only has so much money. So we all are fighting for that little nut. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's the worst way to approach business because it's not what clients want it's not what brands want it's not supportive and it's not a holistic growing environment where everyone's looking at if we grow together there's more money for all of us to have and it's a very different mindset you nailed it with that one word mindset it's powerful it's so powerful Understanding your why and, you know, finding gratitude in the midst of it. I mean, man, I learned gratitude when all hell broke loose and I lost everything. That's when I learned the power of intentional gratitude. I hate saying it. (laughs) It was a hard way of learning it. But man, it has just transformed so many aspects of my life. And, you know, if you as a marketer or as a brand out there, if you can find if you can get really serious about who you are and understand that you're not threatened by who everybody else is you just you be you you go be you and then you find other people that you can go serve and help and it seems like as you do that other people are attracted to you that will actually want to help you and serve you too it's crazy it's crazy but it's scary also right So you think that you might be going too narrow in focus. You think that you might be leaving money on the table. You Mm. think that you might be um, missing opportunities. 
I'm not saying I'm, these are just normal human emotions. Yes, I've seen it. I've seen it every time. To like it's that mindset of changing it and, and coming up with that bigger picture. So that's one more thing I would love to add. And I, I call it the Venturi tube effect. In the agency world in particular, because that's the world that I spent the early part of my career, it was that that same thing like, oh, gosh, well, we need to be all things to all people. And we would never have said that. But that's actually what how we thought. Oh, gosh, if we narrow our focus into this, uh oh, what happens if nobody comes in that? Right. Uh oh, because we're told told diversify, diversify, diversify. But I found that the more narrow you focus like a Venturi tube, and if you don't know what that is, look it up, Google it, Venturi tube. It narrows in the center of this tube, and then it opens up on the other end. The particles and everything accelerates in that narrow tube. That's where I've got a friend who's in a mastermind group with me, and we, we met again this morning. He he was the head of global HR and like recruiting for a big tech company, went out on his own and was struggling. And he's really bright, but he was struggling. Nobody wanted to, and even though he had had this amazing success at an amazing company that's notable, he couldn't get any traction. And then all of a sudden he decides, you know what, I'm dying here. I'm just going to focus on stuff that I love and I love. I'm going to focus on sales professionals. That's it. All of a sudden, he hockey sticked up like crazy and he started going through the stratosphere. Why? And it is just because people could remember, oh, I'm calling Anthony for sales. Mm -hmm. They weren't calling him for the other stuff anyway, <laughs> but they could remember sales, Anthony. You know, right. so you know, uh, positioning battle for your mind. If you've ever read Trout and Rice. Uh, that's one of my favorite books, and it's an oldie but a goodie. We made all of our clients read it, and all of my employees, I made them read it. And it's, you know, the mind has three rungs on every ladder, and that's about all I can remember. And if you if you don't occupy those one of those three rungs, set up a new ladder. And you know, they used NyQuil as creating a new ladder because cold medicine was already taken by Alka-Seltzer and others. So they created the first nighttime, you know, they created a whole new ladder. And so I think that's another one positioning battle for your mind. Look that up all your listeners. Uh, that's a, it's concise, really interesting. It's probably got some out of date examples, but the, the principles are still timeless. I think. Well, I'm madly Googling right now, and there's a lot of articles on it on the ladder of consciousness, how perspective dictates your life experiences. So it might be a book that's a little out of date, but the basic theme of it seems to be something that's being carried on today. Yeah. What else should leaders do? Where else do things go wrong for them? So here's another one that I think is interesting. And this is why I ended up writing this book and it's with a publisher right now. So it's not out yet, but this whole thing on imposter syndrome, I was working with the CEO and this, she was the kind of the, the linchpin, like it made it, it clicked it over for me. Um, she had at the time, 10,000 W2 employees on her payroll, 10,000. 
And she said, Gary, I don't know what I'm doing. And I'd coached her and I helped her get her first CFO, COO when she was that big. Like I said, Tana, are you kidding me? You know, like people don't have, you know, they can't get by with a hundred employees doing what you've done. And you've got 10,000 of them, which is just 10, like so many that you're basically queen of an anthill and you're not even sure uh, uh, it's unbelievable. You live in your hill. And she said, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, yeah, you do. And she goes, I only have two years of secretarial school. I didn't even go to college. And she had a kid at age 15 out of wedlock, got beat up by the guy, had the baby, abandoned by the guy. And she has this epiphany in the hospital when she's 15 years old, what she wants to do. She, uh, her, her story is amazing. Look, look her up, Tana Green, G-R-E-E-N-E. And she wrote a book called Creating a World of Difference. But she was the last one that made me go, okay, wait a minute. Every CEO that's confided in me has at one point said, I don't know what I'm doing. And it was imposter syndrome. Yeah, I'm in over my head. You know, if people just knew this about me, they wouldn't respect me. I'm like, and I dealt with it way too long too. I'm a, I'm a college dropout, you know, so... Same thing, you know, and here I am at Bank of America and I got MBAs from Northwestern reporting to me that I actually had to fire and I don't even have a bachelor's, you know, so like all over the place with me, but it's really not about me. The reality is we all deal with this. Most of us sociopaths don't because they don't, they don't feel, but if you're not a sociopath, I've got good news. You good probably news. Good news for you. <laughs> the fact that you feel like you're a fake, a fraud, you're not capable of doing crap. The good news there is that your mother did not bear a sociopath. Amen to that. Oh boy. And I've had <laughs> sociopaths in my life and that is no, no joke. Um, but the reality is, is we're all made anything but typical. Like we're all different and our thumbprints prove it. 80 some billion people on the planet and think of all the people before, now and after and nobody has the same thumbprint as you. That's by design. I truly believe that. And I think that, you know, it, it still comes back to, that's one of the seven things that I talk about in this book of helping silence that imposter. But to understand, hey, you're unique and embrace that uniqueness in everybody else too. Right. Be who you are. <laughs> Go be who you are. So anyway. Well, on that note, how can people find out about you, who you are, reach out, connect all over to you? LinkedIn is probably the easiest place. Um, and it's just Gary Fry. And if you see funky glasses, that's me. My Instagram got hacked three months ago. And so all my followers gone and I can't get Instagram to do diddly squat. I don't know why I don't post crazy stuff, but somebody took control of it. Evidently. I don't even know why anybody would want Gary Fry as, as their handle. I don't know, but for, so Instagram is kind of out at this point. I've, I've got Gary Fry backup. ACCT is my handle there, but you know, it's, couple hundred people that's it well, so a anyway. little a little uh, note for any of you who are like oh i'm writing down his name it's f-r-e-y not f-r-y not any other spelling f-r-e-y if you're looking him up on linkedin that's right no notes yes 
Yeah. Well, if Gary, you call me Frey, I know you're a telemarketer. There you go. <laughs> or, you know, just meaning your podcast. Or you just don't know me yet. You just don't know me yet. So. No, that's the best place. Thank you so much for coming today. I think that was fantastic. Everything that you are sharing, I certainly, as an owner of an agency, resonate, see the path, hear it. And I know that others who are leaders and others who are in management or on their own career paths forward will be able to learn from this. Do you have any parting words of advice? No, be grateful every day. For each gift, every day is a gift. That's why they call it the present. <laughs> and so I would just say, be grateful and and be uniquely you and get really serious about what your purpose is and communicate that well and often. Well, Gary, thank you for joining us today. I do appreciate it. I have enjoyed learning. Thanks, Stacy. And to all of our listeners, <laughs> thank you for tuning in to another episode of Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I look forward to chatting with you this next week. And if you have any questions about how you can bring your brand, some massive brand clout through product placement and celebrity endorsements and getting to be the it brand of Hollywood, reach out and I'm happy to connect. And I look forward to chatting with you soon. Have a great one.